Thank you, choir, orchestra, and praise team for leading us this morning. Hebrews chapter 7, if you have your Bible, Hebrews chapter 7. Well, let me say to you, happy almost 4th of July as we celebrate our nation's independence. I do want to say this. I, I want to recognize those among us who have served this country uh, in our armed forces. And so if you are here today, you're a veteran, uh, would you stand, maybe even active duty, would you stand, let us recognize you, and thank you for your service to our country. Thank you very much for your service. As Brother Bobby said so rightly a moment ago, how we need to pray for our country. The only hope for uh, America's continuance is a spiritual awakening that takes place, that we acknowledge the one true God. The Word of God says that blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And so certainly when people begin to recognize that He is the one true God, people give their lives to Him, it changes the whole culture uh, of a community, changes the whole culture of a nation, and certainly we want to pray for uh, our country today. And so I want to do that in just a moment before we dig into uh, the study of the Word of God from Hebrews chapter 7. Let me share some things with you that will be taking place in the next few weeks. I'm going to have some guest speakers coming in for the next few weeks. Ronnie Smith, a good friend of mine who's been with us several times over the years, always as the old folks used to say, knocks the bark off the trees when he preaches. Uh, and so he'll come with a word from the Lord that we need as, as the church. And so I'll be here next week, but uh, Ronnie will be uh, bringing the word, so grateful for, for him. The next week, Dr. Sean Bice will be here. Uh, those of you who go on Wednesday nights, you know uh, Dr. Bice. He comes on our Wednesday night service sometimes. He speaks there also. A wonderful man of God. We all love him. He's done extensive work in the book of Hebrews and teaches a class on the book of Hebrews. So he's going to actually close out chapter 7 for us on the 16th. And then we'll take a break from the study of the book of Hebrews until August, and we'll pick back up in chapter 8 there. Then on the 23rd, uh, Dr. Tommy Green will be with us, our executive director and treasurer of the Florida Baptist Convention, always a powerful preacher, great friend, love Tommy, and I know he always brings a word that challenges, encourages, and builds up, and so uh, he'll be here on the 23rd. And then Dr. Brock McCoy will close out the month of July uh, and bring a word for us on that final Sunday. And then I'll be back in the pulpit then on uh, that first Sunday in August, picking back up. And we'll have one message, I think, before I dig back into um, the book of Hebrews. And so that first message will be different. And then we'll get back into Hebrews. We're going to do, just like I said when we started the, the study of Hebrews, if the Lord impresses that something else needs to be dealt with on a Sunday or a couple of Sundays, we'll do just that. And so um, we'll take us a little break, and then we'll dig back in to the book of Hebrews. Well, let's pray, and we'll begin looking at the text for today. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I am thankful for you. I'm thankful that you are my God. You rescued me from my sin and gave me eternal life. Without you, Lord, I would be nothing, and I am nothing apart from you. Lord, you are my strength. You are my peace. Lord, you are my everything. Lord, I can't make it one moment of time without you. And Lord, I come before you this morning asking that you would help me to preach the word with faithfulness this morning. I pray that you would take away distractions from this room, from our hearts and our minds. Help us to have ears to hear what the Spirit 
has to say to us today, and I pray that you will make up for my vast inadequacies and give me the power from on high to deliver the Word of God with compassion and correctness and clarity and conciseness and with conviction, Lord, and with authority. And I just ask, Lord God, that you will speak to every one of us in this room. I pray for uh, things that would hinder us from receiving your word would be broke down and torn down and removed. And I pray, Lord God, that you will speak to us. Lord, we come before you today, Lord, realizing that we're a blessed nation and we're a blessed nation because of you. Lord, I also see in our country today a great rebellion and a great rejection of your word and your will and your design. And Lord, we see the effects of your discipline and your judgment upon this nation to certain degrees. And Lord, we cry out to you today, Father, and ask for mercy, that you would forgive us for our waywardness, that we as the people of this land would repent and realize you are the one true God and and there would be people from uh, our government, our people in, uh, in, the, in, in the cities, in the suburbs, in the small towns, the countryside, that would, that would know their need for you and call on Jesus to save them. Lord, we need a spiritual awakening. You've sent them here in the past, and we ask you to do it again. And now, Lord, I pray again for you to use me this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 22 is the text for today. I want to speak on this subject, the perfect priest to accomplish God's purpose. Now, for those who are our guests here today, just to kind of catch you up a little bit on the book of Hebrews, Hebrews is written to ethnic Jews who had responded to the gospel, had been saved, and yet now they're experiencing some opposition, they're experiencing some persecution cultural pressures on them. There's a temptation for them to go back into a life of Judaism, which was more accepted. Certainly their families would accept them if they did that. And so they're, they're being tempted to move back into uh, that um, lifestyle to avoid persecution and opposition. And the writer of Hebrews is telling them how foolish that is. Endure, be faithful, persevere, don't give in. Stay faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ because He is supreme, He is superior, He is greater than the, uh, the priesthood of Judaism, the sacrificial system. He is greater than anything or anyone. He's heir of all things. He is the creator and sustainer. He is the, uh, the expression of God's glory. He is the exact image of the person of God. He is the one who purges sin. He is the one who is sovereign and sits at the right hand of God. Uh, and so we see that in the book of Hebrews. And now I want to talk this morning specifically in chapter 7, which is key to the writer of Hebrews' argument to these people about how that Jesus is superior to the Levitical priesthood. And so I I want to talk about that from this text. Now let me start by saying this. God desires to have a relationship with us. And what a grand thought that is that the eternal, transcendent, all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, almighty God desires a relationship with us. That is an incredible thought. And that relationship that He desires to have with us is far superior to any experience we could 
that we could ever encounter. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can feel. There's nothing we can have that can come close to what the experience of a relationship with the one true God brings into the life of those who know Him. Now, let me just tell you something. There's hardships in that life also. And there's tribulations in the life that we live. Matter of fact, Paul said in the book of Acts that uh, we're going to enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy, he said, you just might as well understand this, that those who desire to be godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We're going to suffer uh, on, in this earth because the world system is against us. But even while we're in that type of atmosphere, experiencing those kinds of things, there is power and joy and grace and strength that come from the Lord that allows us to have a better existence than if we were living full force for the world itself. I think sometimes we also forget about the great joy of eternal life that is to come for us. You know, it amazes me sometimes how Christians view eternal life. And, and I would say it's immature Christians because um, you, you ever talk with someone and they have this idea and maybe you've even had it at one point in your experience yourself. You think about eternal life and you're thinking about, well, it's like one long, boring church service. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what some people think, that it's just going to be like that and it's just, you're just kind of sitting there, you know, and if that's how you feel about church, then man, you find another church, I guess. But, but here's, the, here's the thing about that. Sometimes folks just come and they do their religious duty and they, they can't wait to get through with their religious duty, check it off their list so they can kind of get out and do whatever they're wanting to do that they think is, is fun. So they have this idea that it's just, eternal life is just absolutely boring. And, and that is such a wrong thought. We cannot imagine the, effect, the effects of the pleasure and peace and joy and fulfillment that results from being in the presence of God. I think sometimes... We as Christians fail to recognize that because we don't seek God like we should. We're too busy. We've got too much going on to seek Him uh, like we ought to. I remember, and I've told you this story before. Some of you may remember this, but many years ago, about two years after my conversion, which has been over 30 years ago now, I was in Romania on a mission trip. First time I'd ever been out of the country. I um, never thought I'd get out of North Georgia, let alone the country. And I had never had a desire to get on an airplane. My first airplane ride was about nine hours long. And so we, we go to Romania, and, and not long after communism had fallen there in Romania, God had opened an incredible door, and there were many people coming to know Jesus as their Savior. And uh, we was on a team of about 30 people with different assignments, and all of us were involved in different ministries, and my team was, was evangelism team. Now, we were all a part of of uh, getting things ready to show the Jesus film. If you, some of you may be familiar with that. That's what Campus Crusade for Christ used for years and still, still have that. They call it crew now, not Campus Crusade for Christ anymore. But they um, would show that film that just showed the life of Jesus and then the gospel would be shared and there'd be an invitation given for people to respond to the gospel. And we did that in a local theater in a town. And so um, one night before we showed that film the first time, we had a prayer walk, and we're all over that building praying and asking for God to be there and work in people's lives and, and their hearts be open to the gospel. And, and I remember just being by myself, and I was walking around uh, upstairs just praying, and as I just rounded a corner, 
to go down another hallway, I was suddenly met by the presence of God. And I, I just began to weep. My knees got weak. I was just in awe of, of God and what I was experiencing in that moment. And I did not want it to end. And then and suddenly, uh, that moment was gone. Now, those things sometimes happen throughout the years. I think sometimes they're, a, they're just a, an encouragement to the people of God. They're a reminder of what is to come for us. There would be nothing like being in the presence of God. God desires us to draw close to Him. How do we draw close to God? How do we draw near to God? Because you see, people have a problem that keeps us from drawing near to God. And that problem is our sin. That sin alienates us from God and there's nothing we can do about our sin on our own because we're born into sin. We're born with a sin nature. We're tainted by our sin. We all embrace our sin and it alienates us from God and we cannot draw near to God on our own. We are alienated from Him. We need a deliverer. We need a mediator. We need someone to bring us to God. And Jesus is that mediator. He is that priest, which is a mediator between God and people. And that's what the writer of Hebrews was writing to these beleaguered Hebrew Christians that received this letter. And they, they were being encouraged, you stay faithful because the high priest that you serve right now, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the one who can bring you to God. He is the one who allows you to draw near to God. You cannot draw near to God through the Levitical priesthood. It is only through Jesus, the one and only mediator, that you can have a relationship with the one true God. So he makes that argument in what I'm going to be dealing with today. Let's take a look at these verses, beginning in verse 11, Hebrews 7. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priest without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. 
So this chapter deals extensively with the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ and his superior priesthood over the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priesthood describes those who descended from Levi, and particularly Aaron, who became the priest uh, of God in, in the Jewish world and the, among the Hebrews to be a representative, a mediator between God and man. But this was a temporary priesthood. This priesthood could not perfect anyone. The priests themselves could not be made perfect this way. The worshipers could not be made perfect this way. But there would be one who would come, able to make men, women, boys, and girls perfect before God and bring them into a relationship with the one true God. And that high priest and that order of priesthood would be the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So the main idea of this message today is that Christ Jesus' priesthood is superior and accomplishes God's purpose for people to have a relationship with him. Now, three things in this text are said about the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Three reasons that his priesthood is better. Here's the first one. His priesthood is better because it comes from an indestructible life. Verse 11 says, if the Levitical priesthood was able to accomplish what God ultimately de desired to accomplish in bringing people into relationship with him, then there would be no need for another priesthood to come but the Old Testament foretells of a need for another priesthood to come, one that can complete the job, one that can make the difference, one that can truly make people perfect in the sight of God and bring them in to a relationship with Jesus. David prophesied of this in Psalm 110 in verse 4 when he, when he said of the Messiah that he would be a priest of the order of Melchizedek and it would be an eternal priesthood. In Psalm 110 and verse 4, perfection is not possible through the Levitical priesthood. What does this word perfection mean? This word perfection is a word that means to reach a goal, to accomplish a goal. And the goal there is to bring people into a relationship with God. That's what perfection speaks of. And the Levitical system could not accomplish perfection in the priests or the worshipers. The law cannot perfect people. So there needed to be a priest of another kind. Notice in verse 11, that word another, there are two Greek words for another. One means of a like kind, and one means something completely different. This one is the word that means something completely different. There had to be a completely different priesthood that would arise according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, as we talked about last week, was a type of Christ. The way he's described in Scripture uh, points to the ultimate high priest and mediator that will make people perfect. In the Genesis account in Genesis 14, there's no record of his father or mother. He was described not only as a priest, but also a king. There's no genealogical record uh, of his family history that would, that would qualify him for priesthood. There was no date of his birth, no date of his death, no record of his priesthood ever ending. Melchizedek was in imagery what Jesus Christ is in reality. And so he is better and superior to the Levitical priesthood. 
The Levitical priest, they had to descend from Aaron. They had to offer sacrifices for their own sins and weaknesses because they were sinners themselves. They had to end their tenure because they died. Someone had to come along and replace them. And as hard as they tried, they could not perfect people. But then another one comes along, and he's from a different tribe than the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah, from which no one has ever served the altar of God. That's the tribe of the kings. And there was a clear distinction between the office of king and the office of priest. One time, King Uzziah tried to be priest. The Word of God says in, in the Second Chronicles 26, and he was stricken with leprosy because of it. But now we see one who comes from the tribe of the kings who is also priest. And that's exactly what the Old Testament prophets prophesied about the Messiah. He does not have a genealogy like the Levitical priest. Verse 15 says that he arises. Don't you notice that word arises there? That's an interesting word. That word can be translated arises himself. That means that he is self-sufficient. He did not need human procreation to bring him into being. You know why? Because it's a reference to the fact that he's eternal. He's God the Son. He's always existed. Now, what he did do is take on human flesh, and he came to earth. I believe that this word even gives us a subtle reflection of the virgin conception. But not only that, I believe it gives us a subtle reflection of the death and resurrection of Christ. Can I remind you of something? Nobody took Jesus' life. He willingly laid it down. You can't take the life of God. He laid it down on our behalf, and then he took it back up being raised by the Spirit, the Word of God says. So what's being described here is a superior priest, one who can accomplish the task of making people right with God and bringing them into a relationship with the one true God. He's not a priest. Verse 16 says that's established by a fleshly commandment, like the Levitical priest. You have to descend from Aaron. He comes and he ministers... From this fact, he has an endless life. His life is indestructible. Other priests will deal with their weaknesses and their sins and their diseases and would eventually die. The Lord Jesus is eternal. He cannot fail and he will not ever become frail. He is not weak. He is absolutely perfect and no one can destroy him because he is eternal God. He is the one that is our mediator. It's amazing to me, interesting, I guess you'd say, <clears throat> how the Spirit of God impressed upon Moses to write about such an obscure event of Abraham and his encounter with Melchizedek. There was a purpose for that. By the way, when you read your Bible, you need to understand something. When you read something in your Bible, it's there for a purpose. The Spirit of God has put that together. And what that did in Genesis chapter 14 was a foretelling of the very one who received the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial law, that that sacrificial uh, law would not be sufficient to bring people to God. There would have to be another. And even in Genesis, well, if we go all the way back to chapter 3 and verse 15, <laughs> we can see where there's pointing to one who will come, who can perfect humanity 
and bring people into a relationship with the one true God. Our high priest, he's indestructible. And not only does he provide us with the means by which we can enter into a relationship with God, but then he also helps us every day. He strengthens us. He identifies with our weaknesses, chapter 4 tells us. He's the one who can give us the strength and the grace and the mercy, chapter 4, verse 16 says, uh, to make it uh, in this life as we serve him. He's the one who saves to the uttermost, chapter 7 and verse 25 teaches us. Christ's priesthood is better because it comes from an indestructible life. Priests die. Pastors die. I'll tell you this. Jesus is eternal. Sometimes we put our trust and we try to connect our spiritual connection with God on other people. Sometimes it's a pastor or a church we attend or because grandma, you're a witness to somebody and you start asking about having a relationship with Jesus and they'll, they'll say, well, my grandma, she was a godly woman. Well, well, nobody gets to glory on the coattails of another. <laughs> the only way we get into a relationship with God is through the one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And his priesthood is superior. Secondly, second thing we see here is that his priesthood is better because it results in a better hope and a relationship with God. Verse 18 and 19. The law cannot do this. So the law had to be annulled to a certain degree. Verse 12 says it was changed. Verse 18 says there had to be an annulling. That's a legal term. It means to put away. The word is used over in chapter 9 in verse 26 of the putting away of sin. Now, this is not the whole law. This is, this is the ceremonial law. Uh, th this is that portion of the law that talks about the priesthood and the sacrificial system, that, that's annulled because there was a time that God used that for a temporary covering. He used that for temporary purposes. And in His divine and sovereign time, He brought the priesthood about and the sacrifice about that would actually make people perfect and allow people to have a relationship with Him. So part of this law had to be annulled. But now the moral law itself still stands. But let me tell you what verse 19 tells us, and there's other verses that describe this to us also, like Romans 8.13 and Romans 3.20, and that is that the law cannot perfect anyone. Look at verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. It made nothing complete. Now the law does a great job in revealing to us God's perfect standard. And his standard doesn't change because it comes from his character. And it shows us his perfect standard. But let me tell you what the law will do for us. The law helps us to understand how sinful we are. Paul said in Romans chapter 7, he said, I would not have known not to covet except for the command, thou shalt not covet. What the law does is it awakens us to sin. Helps us understand how impossible it is for us to keep the law of God. How we need desperately someone to deliver us from the state that we're in. The law makes us aware clearly of our death. 
our spiritual condemnation, our separation from God. But what the law does also is to point us to the one who fulfilled the law perfectly and died to atone for us breaking the law. And once you come into a relationship with him, let me tell you what happens then. Then you start obeying the law as a guide for life. Helps us understand how to live for the Lord, how to please Him and walk with Him once we've been converted. It does not convert us. The law cannot transform one single soul. The law cannot regenerate one person. Only Jesus can do that. But the law makes us aware of our need for Him and then helps us as a guide and standard for life once we've been converted. In Romans chapter 8 and Verse 3, the Word of God says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. The law can't bring you to God. Remember when Moses was receiving the law on Sinai and he gave instruction, keep the people away from the mountain. You get too close to the mountain, and those people will die. The, the, the temple itself was exclusive in ways. Women could not go into certain areas. The Gentiles could not go into certain areas. No one could go into one area except the high priest once a year after offering sacrifices for himself. And then also for the people of Israel, he walked into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people of God. The law could not bring you to God. It, it shows in the very system itself there's still a separation. But Jesus brings us in the very presence of God. It points us, the law does, to Jesus. And the Lord, He brought a new hope that allows people to draw near to God. Chapter 1, verse 3 says that He purged our sins. Chapter 2, verse 17 says, He became the propitiation for our sins. That means He satisfied God's justice toward our sin. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12, the Word of God says, With His own blood He entered the most holy place once for all, uh, having obtained eternal redemption. In chapter 7 and verse 25, the Word of God tells us that He is able to save to the uttermost all who come through Him. He's the way to draw near to God. He's the way to have a relationship with the one true God. That's the hope we have in this great high priest, the Lord Jesus. Now, this word draw near in your Bible is translated from one Greek verb that's present tense. It's present active indicative. It's, so it means you keep on drawing near. There's two ways in which God desires us to draw near. Number one, into a relationship with Him through conversion. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, God desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, It's not His will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 23 and verse 32 both say that God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but desire, desires them to turn to Him. In John chapter 3 and 
Verse 17, the Word of God says that God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. This is reflected in the command of God given by the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, that the kingdom of God is at hand so everyone should believe and repent. They should believe in the gospel and repent. Paul preached this also. Acts chapter 17, verse 30 says that God now commands everyone everywhere to repent. He desires to have a relationship with people. He desires for people to draw near to Him. And there is only one way for that to happen, and it's through Jesus Christ. Only Him. But what I see in the world around us today is something else, isn't it? I see people trying to find meaning in life by chasing after the ideologies the world is promoting and embracing. Uh, I see people today even making religion out of sexuality. I don't know how many of you have seen uh, on um, maybe social media, there's this uh, video going around of this, I uh, hesitate to call it a church, but it's taking place in a church setting, and there's a, there's a pastor, there's a woman pastor who is there, and she's leading this congregation of people in what's called the Sprinkle Creed. And, and it is a explicit creed to what they call a non-binary God. And this entire, when you, when you hear it, <clears throat> you almost sense the demonic involved in it. There is <clears throat> all sorts of things like this taking place in our culture. I was, I was watching, anybody ever <clears throat> watch Gilligan's Island? <clears throat> Y'all watch that back in the day. All you youngsters, ask your parents what Gilligan's Island is. I'll tell you what that is. We used to watch that show <clears throat> some, and then there's this marathon on yesterday on the Sundance channel. <laughs> it was just definitely added on, so we're, we got hooked watching 1960s back-to-back -back episodes of Gilligan's Island there for a little while yesterday morning. And <clears throat> here's what really, Stephanie says, what was that? And she rewinded it back, and there's this disclaimer thing that comes up after the commercials, and it said, <clears throat> be careful, I'm just going to paraphrase, be careful of this because, you know, th there may be some very offensive material in this because this is not reflective of 21st century modern viewpoints. So some may be, may be harmed by this or something like that. I'm thinking, Gilligan's Island? You're going to say that about Gilligan's Island and I see the stuff <laughs> that is out there on, uh, in the entertainment today? It, it just kind of shows where we are, you know, as a culture. And listen, the brokenness of humanity has never been more apparent to me in my lifetime. If I live to August, I'll be 55 years old. And some of you are much older than me. You've seen a lot more than me. But I'm telling you, I've seen a lot of change take place just in the last few years. And I've seen a level of brokenness. I've seen a level of rebellion against God that I have never seen in my lifetime uh, in, in this country and let me just tell you this. Sometimes we can sit back and bemoan this and say, oh, woe is me. I'm just going to hide in a hole somewhere and hope Jesus comes back soon. That is not what the people of God are called to do. That's not what we're called to do. Matter of fact, we're called to live boldly for Jesus Christ. We're called to love Him and love others. 
We're called to take the message of hope that you can draw near to God no matter what kind of circumstance you're in. If you will repent and turn to Him who made the provision for your life, He will change you forever and you can have a relationship with the one true God. They're looking for hope in all these things. They're looking for identity and fulfillment and purpose in all these things, but it leads to further brokenness. Only Jesus can bring peace. Only Jesus can bring fulfillment and completeness. Only Him. God's saying, draw near to me through Jesus Christ. But then once you come to know Christ as your Savior, then understand this point also. And that is God continually desires us to draw near to Him. James chapter 4, verse 8. Write that one down if you would, please. Because here's what the Word of God says there. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's written to Christians. That's the same verb that we find, different tense, uh, or different case, but same word that we find over in the book of Hebrews. Draw near to God, and He'll draw near to you. Once we're saved, we're continued to draw near to God. How do we do that? Well, we do that by cleansing our hands. That's the outward conduct of our lives. We do that by cleansing hearts. That's repentance for inward evil desires and attitudes that lead to actions. And we're not to be double-minded anymore. That means, un that means we're to be undivided in our loyalty to the Lord. He's to be first. You, you know what I believe? I believe that many Christians today are not living and walking in the power of God. I believe that many Christians today have allowed such things to creep into their lives, some things that go so unnoticed because they're subtle sins that have become accepted by the people of God to a degree we've settled for it in our lives. And because of it, it has hindered our fellowship with God. It has hindered the power of God that is available to us. It's hindered our prayer lives. Our fellowship with God is not what it should be because we have not drawn near to God. We've not repented and drawn near to Him. And I think we miss out on many incredible spiritual blessings that God has for us because what we're doing is we're drawing near to all kind of things out in the world, but we're not drawing near to God. Last week, I was reading through the book of Acts there in our devotion time, you know, uh, and I read in chapter 21 where Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem. And the Spirit of God has compelled him to go but also the Holy Spirit's giving him warnings along the way and telling him that trouble awaits him. He arrives in Caesarea at Philip's house. Philip, one of the seven, what we think were the first deacons. Philip, the evangelist. He had uh, daughters that were prophetesses, the Scripture says. So he comes to Caesarea, and then a prophet by the name of Agabus comes down from Judea to Philip's house, and he takes Paul's belt and he ties his own hands and feet up, and he says that the one who this belongs to, the Jews will bind in Jerusalem and turn over to the Gentiles. And when he said this and prophesied this, the people there, were, they were upset. They said, you, you cannot go into Jerusalem. And here's how Paul responded to them in verse 13 of chapter 21, the book of Acts. 
What do you mean weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So I read that, and I stopped, and I reflected for a moment on what Paul said. I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. Am I willing to do that? Are we willing to do that? What brings a man or a woman to a point where they would say something like Paul said? It's because of a closeness and intimacy with the one true God that brings about such a statement. An intimacy that I fear the American church is missing today. Maybe some of us are missing it. And what we do is we don't draw near to God, and so we don't find the joy and the peace. And, and then our circumstances begin to dictate our mood, our actions of life. We don't draw near to God. Let me show you something. Flip over, take a left in your Bible real quick over to Colossians. I'm almost done. Y'all hang in there with me. Colossians 1. There's a prayer found here that I love. I pray it for myself. I pray it for you. I pray it for my family often. I need to pray it more. Paul's praying for the Colossians. He lists out what he's praying for them. Verse 11 he prayed this, that they be strengthened with all might according to His glorious power for all patience. That means endurance in every circumstance of life. And long-suffering. That means putting up with others, the offenses of others, the difficulties that you face with others. With joy. It is the power of God that enables a person to endure all circumstances and all people and have joy. How do you have that? How is it possible to be so focused on something else other than your circumstances and, the, and whatever, the difficult person you're dealing with or, or the opposition that you're dealing with or the persecution you're dealing with? What, what is it that helps us tap into the power of God? I think we find the answer in chapter 3 of Colossians. Because in chapter 3, he begins the section dealing with the practical aspects of living out the faith. And here's how it begins. If then you were raised with Christ, that describes salvation. Seek those things which are above. Where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. What's our problem? We don't seek the things above. We don't set our mind on things above, but we set our minds and our hearts on the affections of the world. And therefore, we don't have this closeness with God. We're not drawing near to Him. If I do not spend time in this book on a daily basis, not just to check off that I've done it, but I want to I learn about God, I want to learn His will for me with the intent that I want to humble my life before Him and obey His Word, then I'll tell you this, I'm not drawing near to God. 
So we can gauge our lives right now by that. If we're not in the Word to know God and to, and to submit to His will as we learn it, we're not drawing near to Him. And if we are not drawing near to Him, then we are not, we're not able to experience the nearness of God the way He desires us to experience it and the power and the spiritual blessings that He desires to give us because we simply live by our flesh more than we live by the Spirit. His priesthood is better because it results in a better hope that brings us into a relationship with God. And the final thing that I want to show you here is found in verse 20 through 22. And it'll be very brief because I'll deal more with this in chapter 8. But His priesthood is better because it results in a better covenant. The old covenant served its purpose. It temporarily covered sin but did not take it away permanently. It allowed people to have this level of worship with God and it pointed to the one who would ultimately take sin away and bring people into the very presence of God. But Jesus came to establish a new covenant. And again, chapter 8 deals more extensively with this. And this new covenant is established by an oath, an oath from God. He did not give that to the Levitical priesthood, but He gives it to the priesthood of Christ Verse 21, again, quotes Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This this new covenant, ratified by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, is one that expresses the grace and love of God to bring people into a permanent relationship with Him. The Hebrew Christians were told, don't you leave the superior for the inferior. You have the superior in Jesus. No one can bring you to God but Him. There is nothing or no one better than Him. Christopher Yuan was a man involved in a homosexual lifestyle. He contracted HIV. He was on drugs. He was, just really had a mess up life. And his parents were devoted Christians. They prayed for him consistently and devotedly. They witnessed to him with compassion. They did not condone the life that he was involved in. But when he needed them, they were there. When his friends needed them, they were there to minister to them in some very difficult spots. Because of the testimony of his parents and because Gideon's had placed a Bible in a jail cell or in a jail, he picked up a Bible while incarcerated and began to read the Scriptures and surrendered his life to Jesus. Right now, he leads a ministry called Holy Sexuality. I've read that book, and he talks about living uh, in, within God's design for sexuality. He has a whole new system out right now to teach parents on, on these things, just teaching your, your children these things. Here's what he said, though, that stuck out to me for this message. He said, one of the most incredible factors that led to his conversion was that his parents taught him by their lifestyle that Jesus is better. 
he is. He is better. There's nothing this world has to offer that's better than Jesus. There is no one or nothing, including ourselves, that can enable us to draw near to God into a relationship with Him, only Jesus. So are we living a life right now drawing near to God because we know He's better? Or have we got distracted? Have we chased after the world? Have we embraced the world's ideologies and lost sight of the very one who allows us to have a relationship with the one true God? It may be time for many of us to return to a deep walk with God, one that pursues an intimacy with God every day. Maybe there's some in this room or online watching us and you're seeking, you're looking for completeness in your life and you've tried everything. And the bottom line is, what you've got to realize is the problem that you have is your sin. And you will never be complete until you surrender yourself to Jesus, who will take your sin away and reconcile you to God, and you'll draw near to Him. And there might be some that need that today. You're watching online, or you're in this room, and I would invite you to call on Jesus Christ to be your Savior. We can have someone pray with you if you will uh, come down to the invitation. We'll put you with someone that will take you and pray with you and talk with you more about this. Online, you can text us at 850-638-1830 and text the word next and choose the option you want to know more about having a relationship with Jesus. And some of our team will get in touch with you and talk with you about drawing near to God and having a relationship with Him. Now's the time for us to pray and surrender and talk with God about what He said to us through this message, and I, I pray we'll do that. Heavenly Father, thank You, Lord, for this Word. I pray, Lord, that, that You've made up for my inadequacies in delivering this, and, and You have spoken to people now that will help us, Lord, whether we're a believer or not, to draw near to You. Some need to draw near to you, Lord, to be saved. Others who are saved need to begin to just draw to you each day, Lord. Draw near to you each day and return to following you wholeheartedly. So I pray, Lord, you'll have your way now. During this time, may we reflect on what you've said to us and may we obey you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's stand, please.